James chapter 4, beginning verse 1, says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, we were on our way home the other day and just finally getting where you get off the highway. Kind of more back roads. Once you start hitting the back roads, you're starting to feel like, all right, we're getting somewhere. We're getting home, right? And so we get to Detroit Lakes and we make that left and you take a left and then you take a quick right just after you crash an overpass there or whatever. And just as I, I made that right, another guy coming this way was taking a left into that as well. Well, as they turned in, I, I think I have a yield sign, so I need to yield. So I'm trying to yield, and it looks like they're waiting for me. So then I go to speed up a little bit, and they speed up. And it's kind of like, you know, when you bump into somebody in the hall, and you're like, you're kind of dancing in the hall? Well, that's kind of what it was like. But it was between, I think it was a Honda Fit and a Honda Civic right there. And finally, I get tired of the dance, and I just... uh put my foot down on the car and that little rubber band in the Civic winds right up and gets up ahead of them there. And I felt bad about it because it's, it's my fault. I'm trying to yield, but I was trying to yield. I was trying to do the right thing. But And so if I scared them, I, I felt kind of bad about that. But, boy, I, they, they were mad. And the reason I know that is because they started laying on the horn. And it wasn't stuck because it wasn't one really long horn thing. It was like, me, 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 me. And then I thought, okay, I, I deserve that, you know. But now we're going straight down the road, and they're still going, me, me, me. They're still honking at me for quite a ways. And I was like, wow. And Lisa says, you made them mad. And I, and I said, yeah, I did. And she says, it was your fault. I said, yeah, I know, it was my fault. I feel kind of bad about it, but... A little less bad with each honk of the horn, right? <laughs> but uh, but then he, even she recognized too. She said, "It's a little hard to get too intimidated with such a cute little horn, isn't it?" <laughs> I said, "Yeah, it is." <laughs> but they ended up taking a left not too long after that, and I was glad because there was no way they were passing me. Not after that. I'd, I can't have them right there. I'd have to like go like this or something because I was sure they'd be having some choice words for me or something as they went by. They were really letting me have it there with that horn. And the reason I bring that up this morning is that's what James is doing. In this passage, he's like pulling no punches. He is letting these people have it. Now, this is in a book where we've already recognized that James refers to these people kind of continually as brethren, brothers, beloved brethren, many, many times in such a short book of just five chapters. But you know what? In this passage here, there's none of that. Uh, if you look at the overall passage up through verse 10, he, he calls them uh, adulteresses. He calls them sinners. He calls them some very derogatory names. And for a reason and for a purpose, he's doing it to get their attention because their attention needs to be gotten. Just like that guy with the horn with me, he is letting them have it here. At the end of chapter 3, he looked at two kinds of wisdom. He looked at a wisdom that's earthly, sensual, 
even demonic, and he looked at a heavenly wisdom. And, and he tells him, he says, you know what, I, I don't want you to get it wrong here. I don't want you to be false to the truth. In other words, deceive yourself or think you're using heavenly wisdom when in fact you're walking in the ways of the world. And so he tells him in, back in chapter 3, he says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good, good conduct, let him show his works and meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy... And selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so as he compels them to stay away from this uh, ugliness that you can find around you within the world and cling to the goodness that God has for us, that needs to be the experience in our relationships. Now, the, the, the names that he uses for him here, calling them adulteresses, and, and it, I think it says adulterers in our translation, but it's actually a feminine in the original language. To call them adulterers, to, to call them sinners like that, it might be surprising to you, but the Bible doesn't usually use that kind of terminology for us. I recently did a little bit of a study. I went through and I looked up the word sinner, sinners. And you know that word sinners is almost exclusively used for lost people. In other words, it's you before you came to Christ. Uh, people accuse Jesus of eating with sinners. It's used of Jesus talking about coming here to save sinners. It's used of the angels rejoicing over one sinner that repents rather than the 99 that are already there. And so it's, it's always used of lost people. In fact, as you track that word down in the New Testament, you can find one place where it's used of a believer. Two. This one and the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul uses it of himself one time. and the, But the way he uses it, it's kind of interesting. Because he talks about being a faithful saying that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then he says, of whom I am chief, or I'm the most, I'm the greatest. But it's kind of interesting that in the context of what he's saying, he's encouraging these people that, look, if God would save me, if God could save him, the chiefest of sinners, he can save you. And so if you follow the full example, is the full example is that God took the greatest of sinners and out of that made the greatest of saints. And so it really kind of is made to highlight, even though he's pointing at himself as the chief of sinners, it's made to highlight the fact that even he could be saved and become a saint. We often refer to ourselves, in fact, while we were traveling and looking at different churches that we wanted to attend in different places, one of the churches in their statement of who they are talked about how we're just a bunch of sinners that have experienced salvation in Christ and we gather together to do our best to worship Him. In a sense, that's true. We're all sinners saved by grace, right? And that's often how we identify ourselves, but I found it interesting that that is rarely how the Bible identifies you. You who have been sinners, which is everybody, but have come to faith in Christ, the Bible rarely ever refers to you as sinners again after that. You know what it calls you? Saints. Just about every letter Paul writes, he opens with a greeting to the saints. And many of them, he closes with another greeting to the saints. All through the New Testament, believers 
are very commonly referred to as saints. You see, once you accept Christ and the old has passed away and the new has come, your identity is no longer sinner. Your identity is saint. A saint is not some super class of Christian. A saint is not the hall of fame of the Christian church. And it's not somebody that you can pray to. Only God is that. You know what a saint is? A saint is somebody who's been part of the same word, sanctified. Sanctified means you've been set apart. And that's what the Bible tells us, is that when we put our faith in Christ, God takes us, He has set us apart for Himself. And so when James, the only other place other than the Apostle Paul referring to himself, the only other place where it refers to a believer as calls them a sinner is this point right here in the book of James. So this is serious. These are ugly terms that he's using for these people. And so the question that we have to ask as we're coming into this is when the saints are sinners, what in the world is going on? And that's exactly what James is trying to do is he's trying to explain to them what's going on. You see, the saints that he's writing to are apparently acting like sinners. There's quarreling, there's fighting. He uses hyperbole to describe it. The words in the original language that he's using there in the Greek mean war, battle. He's using hyperbole. He's using exaggerated points to make a finer point. In fact, I think that's why he uses the word murder. I don't think there's actually been a killing in the church back there. When it points to murders, is it is it dealing with murder? Did somebody actually die? Was somebody killed? Most people tend to go a couple of different ways. One way is that you say no. Probably wasn't actually a murder in the church. Didn't get to that point. But he's just uh, expanding it to the whole world. And out in the world, what do you see? You do find murders and things like that carrying on. And, and why do murders happen? Well, murders do happen because of selfish ambition and people not getting what they want and putting themselves first. And so that does end up happening. But it didn't necessarily happen within the Christian. I think it's just exaggeration. Since he's already using like wars like, uh, words like wars and battles, and then to throw murder in there kind of fits. The book of James, as we pointed out, kind of parallels a lot of the Sermon on the Mount. And what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the, on the Mount? That in your heart, hatred was as bad as murder. And so the point is, the ugliness that comes from this strife that's within you, those, these passions that are within you. Now, as we look at it here today in the passage, we find three relationships that are damaged by worldliness. Now, worldliness is what all this got kind of lumped under. Why are you having these struggles? Why are you having these quarrels and fights? It's because of these passions that are within you, the desire that you have for things, the envy, the covetousness that you have over one for one another. That's why you're having these problems. But a little bit farther down in the passage, he kind of wraps it all up in one blanket, or so to speak, and worldliness is the concept. What does this worldliness do in our relationships? Well, it does a lot of damage. And the first relationship that he points out that is damaged is your relationship to others. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? And so he says, look, look at the damage that this is causing, this damage that is happening between people within the church. He's telling them here, he says, look, these fights and these quarrels that are among you, you know what those are from? He said, those are from the ugliness that is inside you. Those are from your passions that are stirring you up. You want something, you want it your way, you're not getting your way, so you're getting kind of cranky about it. 
your crankiness ends up rubbing up next to somebody else's crankiness, and there's a fight. He uses the word a few different words to describe it. He uses the word passions a couple of times. He uses some other words, envy, desires. That word passions, you know, we get we get our word for hedonism from that. Hedonism is a philosophy that the ultimate goal of life is the pursuit of pleasure. Hedonism is, a, is the philosophy of you know, Hugh Hefner in that crowd. As much pleasure, as much uh, enjoyment of anything that I can get in my life, that's what it is. Uh, you know, it's also that those bumper stickers about he who dies with the most toys wins. That's the same kind of thing, pursuing pleasure. You know, we're supposed to be pursuing God and be pursuing His glory. But hedonism pursues self. You have self-glory. You have self-satisfaction. You have self-fulfillment. You have self... Does it sound familiar? If it doesn't sound familiar yet, just open your Facebook for a little while. It'll show... Our society is pushing after self. And he says that's exactly what causes the problems because this person wants something this way and this person wants something this way and the fights are inevitable. Hedonism is no way to build a church. You know what the way to build a church is? Self-sacrifice, not hedonism. Hedonism is no way to build a family. Hedonism doesn't build families. Hedonism tears families apart. Hedonism is no way to build a marriage. That will destroy that as well. It's no way to build a community. It destroys all relationships. My desires end up rubbing against your desires and then trouble is in the air. And so our relationship with others is destroyed through hedonism. You see, Jesus told His disciples, He says, this is how the world's going to know that you're My follower, by your love one for another. Jesus' prayer to the Father for us right before going to the cross was that God would make us one. Now, that oneness would happen in the truth because he said, sanctify them according to your truth. Your word is truth. So in the book of James, when he writes to this church or churches that are dealing with fights and envy and stuff among them, it's exactly the opposite of what Christ prayed for. It's exactly the opposite of Christ, what Christ said the world will know your mind because of your love for one another. He's like, where's that love? It's a common theme throughout Scripture. In 1 Corinthians, when we studied that in chapter 1, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Chapter 3, right before he starts correcting them for all their foolish divisions that were divided over whether they followed Paul or Apollos or Peter or Jesus. And before he corrected them for that, he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, it says, "...only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel." A life consistent with the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel was one man willing to sacrifice himself for the salvation of the rest of us. Hedonism is one person sacrificing the desires of everybody else for their own self-gratification. And that's what worldliness promotes. Worldliness promotes a whole different value system than the one that we're called to live on in Scripture. Philippians went on to give the example of Christ. It starts, he says, "...then complete my joy being of the same mind, having the same love, 
being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to give the example of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, being very God, did not consider it as a thing to be grasped and to be clung to, but let go of it and became obedient came down here, became flesh. And then not only became flesh, but became a servant. And not only became a servant, but submitted unto death, even the death of the cross. Completely sacrificed the splendors of heaven for the the hell of the cross. And He did it for you. He says, that's the mind that we need to have. Willing to make that kind of sacrifice for one another. That is the opposite of the worldly push to fulfill yourself. So it destroys relationships with others because what I want comes into conflict with what you want. And if we're both going to be selfish about it, there's a, there's a fight to be had. But it also destroys the relationship with yourself. Your relationship to self. Verse 1, he says, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Your passions are at war within you. Do you know why we end up with, with problems between people? Because there's problems within people. That's why. You see, for me to get to where I'm going to lash out or I'm going to respond in a negative way towards somebody, there's got to be already something kind of stern in me. There's got to be a problem within me before there can be a problem between us. That's exactly what he's talking about. He says, where do these quarrels come from? He says, you know what? Your passion's inside of you. And in your passions, in this hedonism, you want something, but you're not getting it. And so you're getting frustrated that you're not getting it. I'm, I want my way, but I'm not getting my way. And so I'm getting kind of rubbed wrong. I'm, I'm kind of irritated. And so then when somebody else that wants their way comes along and we happen to brush shoulders, boom, there it goes. That's what causes the quarrels and the fights. We already got something going on uh, with, inside of, with inside of us. You know, it's kind of interesting. Our society has more probably than any other society in the history of the world. All the things that we have available to us this day and age that we take for granted. How many 12-year-olds are walking around with a pretty enormous computer in their pocket? We have so much things, and we have access to everything. We have so much wealth. We have it so amazingly good. And you know what? We are probably the most counseled group of people in the history of our country, if not the world. I got a little bit curious about it and I started looking it up. And I found a lot of articles talking about how psychologists and therapists have noticed such a huge increase in their business. I saw one article that said, since the pandemic, said we're having struggle in the pandemic. They said one out of every six adults has gone to therapy or counseling for their first time since the pandemic. That's just their first time. Not people that were already going. I thought, what's it like before the pandemic? Don't want to blame everything on the pandemic. 2019 surveys showed among adult Americans about 19.2% of people in the course of 2019 went to some kind of counseling or therapy. 19.2%. That's close enough to 20. Let's just round it up. Because that means one in five. Tell me we've got one in five in 2019, even before the pandemic hit. We got up to one in five people are going to some kind of mental health Help? 
Apparently this path of hedonism and pursuing self and having a great self-esteem regardless of what how you're living your life and all this pursuit of self is not helping. If anything, it's exacerbating the problem. So as we look at it, you know, when you focus on self, it's not going to give you what you think you're going to get. It's an empty promise. People are thinking, you know what, i got to take care of number one. Some people even came along uh, in, in Christian counseling and said, well, Jesus said the greatest commandment to love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. So obviously you need to, before you can love your neighbor, you need to love yourself. That's the opposite of what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, "You look, you already love yourself. You feed yourself every day. You clothe yourself when you get up in the morning. You obviously love yourself. Help somebody else. Care for them beyond yourself. But even that, even in some Christian circles, got turned into a big self-love thing. And that is a bunch of foolishness. Pursuit of self will only lead to frustration, bitterness, and the destruction of relationships with other people and tension within yourself. The battle will affect not just your relationship to others, but even within yourself. You will be frustrated. You will be agitated. You will have a short fuse. You will be depressed because it affects you. You know, in Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5, through 5, it says, But understand this, that in the last days there will be there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, out, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Well then, lastly, he deals with your relationship to God. Your relationship to God is also damaged in this. He says in verse 3, starting with our prayer life, you ask and do not receive. You know, the question that comes to my mind is why aren't they asking? Could be a couple things, I guess. This is a little bit Greg between the lines, but I know there's times... When I wanted something, when I was a young person, that I never asked my parents for. You know why? Because I knew they were opposed to it. So maybe that's it. Maybe they're not asking God for the things that they want because they know that God is opposed to those things and they'd be doing wrong to participate in those things. So maybe that's why they're not asking God for those things. Or maybe it's more subtle than that. Maybe maybe they're not asking God for these things because God's just not on their mind. They're not even thinking about asking Him for anything. They're spending more time fighting and arguing than they are praying. You know what? That's kind of a scary point to get to your life. When you get through a day or two days or something like that and you realize, I haven't, I haven't even prayed. I haven't even thought to pray. Maybe that's where they're at because they've kind of got God shut out of their life. But then also he goes on from there and he says, you ask and you do not receive. So some things they just don't ask for, but some of them are asking for things, but they're not receiving. But why aren't they receiving it? Well, because they, they're just asking God to fulfill their wish list of their passions, their hedonism, so that they can express it. And God says, I'm not giving you that. Absolutely not. No way I'm paying for that. You know, every parent, I think, has had that experience with their child where the child wants something and the parent says, not on my dime. That's not happening. No way. Their relationship with God is being damaged. Now, they've been warned about this already in James chapter 1, verse 27, in the concept of worldliness. He says, Religion is that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So he'd already raised this idea of worldliness. But then in, in this passage, then he, he then turns to them and calls them adulterous. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealousy over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we're pursuing our passions, if we're living in worldliness, pursuing self-satisfaction in these things, then it says God is at war with us. He is opposing us. We are at enmity with him. We put ourselves at enmity. John MacArthur and some others have struggled with that. I like John MacArthur a lot. He's one of my favorite commentators, but I disagree with him in this point. I think it kind of might be because he's like, well, how can you be the enemy of God if Christ has reconciled us? I understand that point. But he also said to Peter, who was reconciled to Christ at the time, when Peter started heading the wrong direction, tried to take the Lord aside and rebuke him, but Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. He actually referred to Peter as Satan. Now, is Peter Satan? No. But what is he saying? He's saying, look, you're going, you're doing what Satan wants me to do. You're going the wrong direction. I'm going the way God wants me to go. And so I think he's, I think James is doing the same thing here. He's saying, look, if you, if you pursue this direction, that worldly direction, you are pitting yourself against God. You are stepping up as his enemy. You're, you're putting yourself in enmity with him. And you're putting yourself in opposition to God. He's not in favor of the path that you're heading and he will oppose you in that path. And so this is damaging your relationship with your father. Now in this passage, he quotes two, uh, two verses. One of them I find actually to be very encouraging. And uh, it's not actually a direct quote. It's just kind of a general statement about what the Bible teaches in the Old Testament. Um, or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? Now, it's a very difficult passage to interpret. I think the most accurate interpretation is this. The Spirit is not the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that God put in you. When he... And it says that God yearns for it. He's jealous over it. In other words, he wants you. He wants you. He wants your attention. He wants your focus. He wants your worship. But here's the deal. We get out in the world and things are glittery. And we like that. Some of the things in the world are even good. And God put there for our enjoyment. There in the book he said every perfect gift comes from a God above. But here's the deal. We get so enamored with the gift that we forget the giver of the gift. We get so excited with the thing that God has given to us or the new possession we're able to acquire or the hobby that we enjoy so much or we get so enamored with those things that those get our focus and our focus that should have been toward God saying, God, thank you for these things. It should have been toward God is now lost. And so God in loving us so much that He gives us good things actually loses us in the process as our attention goes elsewhere. And it says He yearns jealously for us. Well, that's a that's a theme that's found throughout Scripture. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, and but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." So God is jealous for our affection and will not let it go easily. And so we have this God that yearns for us. And then the passage he quotes right after that is Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, where it says God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. So here's a group of people that James is writing to. You're, you're an adulteress. Nothing new to them. 
In the Old Testament, Israel was often called an adulteress because God made a covenant relationship with them and they turned their back on God to worship other gods. Israel was called the wife of God in the Old Testament. The church is called the bride of Christ in the New Testament. And when we drift toward other things, we are committing adultery. We're unfaithful. And so now Jacob writes to this group of people and he says this, you're worldly. Because of your worldliness, your relations with one another are being destroyed. Your relationship with yourself is being damaged. Your relationship with God is being turned from friend to enmity. What's the answer? Well, we're going to get a lot more specific with it next week. But the answer is grace. He gives more grace. And so it's to these people now, what are they going to do? Are they going to embrace the grace of God and the forgiveness of God for, for playing the harlot and going down a different path for pursuing other things as if they were gods with things that are not gods? What are they going to do? Well, if this identifies a time in your life at the moment, what are you going to do? Are you pursuing God? Through His grace, are you pursuing Him in a relationship with Him? Or has it got to the point where, you know, I just, I've hardly even thought about praying to ask God for the things that I need in my life? Have the gifts that God has given you and allowed into your life drawn you closer to Him, or are they actually pulling you away? Are we focused on glorifying God or self-fulfillment? The same thing that was open to them is open to us, and that is the grace of God.